listeners i hope you all had a fantastic festive period and are all keeping safe with your friends family and colleagues from the omicron variant thank you for your support and welcome to season four of the pd podcast hosted by myself prane budev i hope we can continue to deliver you excellent interesting guests from the field of pediatric orthopedics and you can all learn something from them This episode, I was very excited to conduct face-to-face in uh, November of 2021, just prior to the Omicron variant being announced, when I happened to be in Zimbabwe. We get to speak to Dr. Rick Gardner, who is a pediatric orthopedic surgeon and chief medical officer of Cure International. We had a broad conversation about his training and journey into orthopedics, and subsequently, how he developed an interest in delivering Uh, pediatric orthopedic expert care in the African subcontinent. His journey has taken him uh, around uh, Africa from Malawi to Ethiopia, now to Zimbabwe, and also from a leadership point of view as the chief medical officer of the large international organization known as Cure. This conversation explores a, a whole facet of topics. I really hope you find it interesting and I hope you'll continue to join us on the first Sunday of each month going forward for our future episodes. Please share, like, subscribe to the podcast, tell your colleagues about it. Let's get into it. Ladies and gentlemen, it gives me absolutely great pleasure to conduct the first face-to-face interview uh, since February 2020 prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. And where better to do it than in Bulawayo, Zimbabwe with Dr. Rick Gardner, who is a paediatric orthopedic surgeon uh, and chief medical officer for Cure International. Um, For those of you who don't know, Bulawayo is the second largest city in uh, Zimbabwe, which is a country just above South Africa, bordered by Mozambique, Zambia and Botswana. Very beautiful, very lush, and I happened to be here and I couldn't hesitate to uh, fly down and come and see this brand new hospital that was opened by the president of Zimbabwe just Uh, earlier this year. Uh, Rick, thank you so much for joining me for this. Yeah, thank you for having me. No, it's a huge pleasure and honour for me. So um, I know you've heard a few of my previous podcasts and you know what I've really tried to do is find um, people who are delivering impeccable care and doing something different. You know, we've obviously met surgeons from some of the biggest hospitals, uh, paediatric orthopedics in the world. Um, But here you are in Zimbabwe of all places, uh, looking after uh, a huge population. I got to spend some time with you in clinic today seeing basically textbook pathology uh, this morning, which was a huge learning experience for me. We're going to get to how you came to Africa first, but tell me where did it all begin? Tell me about your upbringing, uh, medical school, and what led you to orthopedics in the first place. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, yeah, I, I've uh, one of two brothers. We were brought up in the south, uh, the southeast of England, and from a, um, a very tight knit family, really, from hugely supportive parents who I think is um, I'm the, the youngest of three, and were probably more permissive when. I came around um, and, um, and really, really supportive family, went through school locally, um, went to medical school at St. George's in, um, in London um, and that was you know, an amazing experience and, uh, and stayed in London for the next 
five years or so. Um, and, and then did my registrar training in, in Bristol um, and then did some work overseas along the way, which was very sort of formative times to me, which, which in many ways has, has led me here now. I know you train in Bristol and obviously one of our just recent episodes was with Mr. Martin Gargan, yeah. who, who knows you very well. How was your experience of training in Bristol? Why did you apply to that particular region or was, what was the story behind that? Yeah, actually Bristol's always had an had amazing reputation. I was... I did my house officer time and my junior doctoring time in London um, and um, I had a six month period where I thought I would sort of branch out. Um, there was an SHO job at the, uh, at the BRI and, uh, and I spent six months there and actually just loved it. It was a wonderful time of life, a few years after um, medical school doing my first orthopaedic job, worked in an incredible department where yeah, Martin Gargan, he was head of the training program. Some, wonderful people you've had on, Fergal Monster were there, just very inspirational orthopaedic surgeons who love their work, great leaders, um, so committed to patient care above all else. And I just thought that actually people who love their work as they do and just had amazing relations with their parents, with the, with the parents of the children, um, they kind of were, were people I thought that actually that's the kind of role that I would like. And I thought Bristol would be a great place to do training. And yeah, it was a wonderful five years there. Now, obviously now you're in Africa, but you spent quite a bit of time in different countries. Was that during your training? Where did you spend some time and uh, what experiences did you have that, so I guess, have led you to spending your consultant career in, on this continent? Yeah, it, it was easier um, to spend, take some time out of training. Um, it's something that I loved. I, I had a, a period of time um, in traveling through Central Asia and along the way I spent a couple of months working with a small NGO uh, in Afghanistan. I came back and um, started off on my senior SHO jobs uh, and an opportunity came up with um, in Umtata in South Africa with a, a little orthopedic hospital in the Eastern Cape run by an amazing guy called Professor Chris McConaughey who was a Scottish orthopedic surgeon who had been there for 27 years serving a population of five million people in the old Transkei region, where we really see a lot of the similar neglected pathology that we see all over Sub-Saharan Africa. And he was a truly inspirational man who had raised money to run that hospital with his wife, Jenny, who, who was still a nurse, um, and um, had an incredible ethos, really, of love for that population. Um, so the six months there, just to see what could be done from a small hospital to serve a very challenging um, group of pathologies, the children, the adults who came in had very, um, had very challenging problems. And, and he, he just sort of sat down each morning, see in the fracture clinic, we had a lot of gunshot wounds and, uh, and people coming in with tuberculosis, the spine. It was a period with very, very high HIV and that brought his own problems as well. And um, he had a sort of a, a mantra about do what you can. Um, we didn't have all of the facilities there that maybe we would be used to in the UK, but he would make the very best of them. Uh, but he was a very formative person for me. He just showed me really what kind of an amazing career of service in a difficult area could look like. Um, and then I came back to the UK. I started off my registrar training in Bristol. Um, and, you know, the leadership there, including Martin Gargan, who was on one of your podcasts recently, um, were very accepting of taking six months out uh, of training, which then became a full year, so I could go and visit the Cure Hospital in Malawi. And I think prior to that, 
I had, I knew that working overseas was something I just loved and something I'd like to a lot more of in the years to come. But I thought that was always going to be a period of time where you had to compromise what went on. And we talked a little bit earlier about, you know, the challenges in that kind of environment where you might not have the safe anesthesia to take care of children and adults, particularly, you know, particularly small children. You might not have the sterile uh, situations in theatre and you might want to straighten out a limb, but then, you know, you can make people a lot worse if you don't have sterility uh, there or you might not have the implants. But coming to the Cure Hospital in Malawi, working with two British orthopaedic surgeons who have become great friends and mentors of mine, John Cashman, who's now a consultant in Sheffield, spent seven years there. Jim Harrison returned back to Chester a few years ago, spent 10 years leading that hospital. And seeing these two surgeons leading a hospital, dealing with some of the most complex children that I had seen, but with a degree of excellence that rivaled any international place, um, was something that just completely expanded my horizons about what was possible. Um, so it was a wonderful year, and I um, and I then came back to the UK, and then and then finished my my training. And I know, had you come back to um, Africa before your fellowship, or because you ended up going to Sick Kids in Toronto for your fellowship as well, I believe. Was that while you were in the UK, you applied to that, and what was your experience of of your year in fellowship, particularly knowing that you were potentially going to come back to a low middle income country to for your senior practice? Yeah, no, Sickids was an incredible year. Um, I think you've spoken to many of the people there, Andrew Howard and, and, and Jim Wright, um, the two of them. It was, it was an amazing juxtaposition for me to be spending a year at the hospital in Malawi, which I kind of felt in many ways as being a first fellowship and then time in Sickids, working with people who've written the textbooks and had described the operations and, to, um, and just to come alongside and just to really see how they took care of of children um, in, in just, yeah, in, in an amazing way with incredible volume of children coming through those doors. So that year was, was, was very, made a deep impression on me. Um, and I think Sick Kids is also, it's an amazing place because with University of Toronto, it's got a very expansive view of its place in the world. The Global Health Department, the University of Toronto was one that they've got programs all over. Um, and it was while I was there, Andrew Howard um, was the chief examiner for COSEXA at the time that year, the College of Surgeons, Eastern, Central, Southern Africa, which is maybe known to many of your, your listeners, but it's, um, it's, a, it's a wide um, accreditation uh, examination body in Sub-Saharan Africa of now 14 countries uh, where trainee surgeons would get together every year and do an exam that was completely in line with the British fellowship examination and um, with uh, patient stations and then clinical vivas and Andrew went back to uh, officiate that. Um, I joined him and, um, and it was there that actually I visited the Cure Hospital in, in Ethiopia where, um, well that sort of changed my path again. I was heading back to the UK and to work there for a number of years before maybe going overseas but that sort of sped up that process and I, I moved overseas sooner than, than we thought we were going to. So you finished your fellowship in Toronto. Next thing you know, you're in Addis Ababa city centre uh, in Ethiopia, um, working at the Cure Hospital there. Um, what was your, were you, you, were you appointed just as the paediatric orthopedic consultant there? Um, who else was working there with you and what sort of things were you seeing and doing? Yeah, so um, I had two, or I still have two amazing colleagues there, uh, Dr. Teddy and Dr. Mesvin, 
who are uh, Ethiopian orthopedic surgeons trained by Cure in Kenya. Um, just fantastically talented people. Um, and so I was the third surgeon there and my remit was children's orthopedics, also some adult work, so hip replacements, knee replacements, ACL reconstructions. Um, Cure at the time had a model to have some adult work to help fundraise for some of the children's work. Um, but my main focus was taking care of kids and you know that in a population, well Ethiopia's got over 100 million people. Um, in 2013 when I arrived there, there were 60 orthopaedic surgeons for that number of people, sort of one for every, every two million. And in the UK it's about one for every 30,000. And many of those orthopaedic surgeons uh, were caught up understandably dealing with acute trauma. There was just huge need of acute trauma from the roads, from industrial accidents, from farming, um, and very little recourse for children with uh, more elective pathology to be able to get care. And so um, the population of children there in, in the country is somewhere north of 60 million people. And, uh, and so the hospital was just a fantastically busy place dealing with children who traveled from all four corners of the country to come down to be treated in, in the hospital. So tell me a bit about Cure itself, um, because I think that will give the audience a bit of a view of what actually this uh, organization is. Um, sort of Cure is an international uh, operation with a network of, I believe, eight pediatric hospitals looking largely after children with disability. Um, and I know that has changed somewhat, as you sort of mentioned, you were doing adult operations, but now I think the focus has very much been on delivering care for children. Um, and you're currently in eight countries, so you've got Niger, Malawi, Zambia, Ethiopia, Kenya, Uganda, Zimbabwe, and the Philippines. Um, so those are the current eight, but I believe there were a couple more that are, are no longer. So to tell us a bit about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so Cure has always been there to take care of kids. Um, the, the adult side has always been a very small part, and, and actually now the focus is entirely on, on children all the way through. Um, and we're a Christian organization with a combined medical and spiritual ministry. I mean, many of the children who come through the doors, um, they've carried huge baggage over their lives and their families too. You know, they have been stigmatized and ostracized. Um, there's a real sense that their families have been cursed and there's a deep sense of uh, loss and grieving for the family for not having a normal child. And then many of these children are children with treatable disabilities. They don't necessarily need complex surgery. Sometimes they do. Um, but there's so much opportunity for us to be able to give them a better start of life, to be able to make sure that they're not left behind and so that they can really be integrated in society and just to be able to, um, to really live the lives of their, um, that, that they would be able to had they, um, had they been born maybe in a higher income country. Um, and so Cures had hospitals, the other country we used to have them, we used to have one in Honduras and one in Dominican Republic. Uh, the one in Honduras um, thrived for many years. It became unsafe after time due to um, local insecurity. Um, in Dominican Republic, you know, it took a really strong role in training other doctors. And the, the local uh, orthopedic surgeons grew vastly in number and there wasn't a, a need to be able to run a children's orthopedic hospital there. So we've really focused on countries where there's, um, there's a huge um, need for children's orthopaedic care in a hospital in Uganda. It's neurosurgical, um, children with hydrocephalus, uh, spina bifida and brain tumors. Um, but in all the other ones, it's orthopaedic and children who also have had um, severe burns, um, terrible contractures as a result. And we have an incredible team of plastic surgeons 
who can take care of some of these children, where it's really, in many ways, a disease of poverty. Small children buy fires in the, in the early time, clothes catching on fire, and some terrible contractures coming as a result. Um, and I think a big focus of our work is to provide the highest standard of care, but also to train local surgeons to do the same. And that's been a big part of us. Um, you know, I've been a, a huge beneficiary of amazing training over the years, and for us to be able to come alongside really exceptionally talented local surgeons and to um, bring them into our hospitals and to show the, the ways that they can take care of their own um, and for them to go back to their own hospitals and to continue that and to train others to do the same has been a big focus and, and joy for us. I was interested when I was reading up about Cure that each hostel has not only a medical director but then a spiritual director. Um, obviously, I know it's a Christian organisation. What, 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 what does the spiritual director do? So the spiritual director has a vital role um, to really be at the heart of the decisions of the hospital to make sure that our combined ministry is not just purely on the medical side. Um, as a Christian organisation, um, we really want to be able to share our faith and we want to be able to do medical care with excellence. You know, the children who come through um, and the parents who come through they are often, they're often grieving, they're often traumatised and the spiritual director will work alongside with them to be able to deal with a lot of the burdens they're seeing, um, to be able to share faith and to be able to connect them with local churches. There's so much psychological healing that needs to happen for many of these children and these families and they just have a crucial role within our hospital so that our ministry is combined. You know, we are a Christian organisation, we share our faith, we show children um, a lot more than just physical healing so that they can just return back with a sense of joy and to be able to be connected with their local churches and to have a deep faith that can just run through their lives and and just be they can just have a light within them that is just a, a joy for them and uh, and really can be transformative for the communities to whom they return. And, you know, I was reading, you know, the, one of the mission statements, I guess, is to deliver life-changing surgical care and intentional spiritual care. So that sort of yeah. summarises quite nicely. And, you know, the current eight countries, I think, you know, there's about nine million children that live with disabilities in these particular eight countries. And Cure so far has seen over five million children for what I believe and done nearly 300,000 surgeries so it's doing a huge amount of work and we're going to come to uh, your role as chief medical officer on the executive board and what that entails but let's take a step back to your time in Ethiopia um, what sorts of things were you seeing pathology wise in Ethiopia and maybe some things that you would expect we wouldn't we would be surprised to hear about yeah so um, well I mean sick kids is is known for just exceptional work of hip dysplasia, for example. You know, John Wedge uh, worked with Bob Salter for many years. Um, and I, you know, the uh, children would come from all over the country and often internationally to be treated for some very complex results from hip dysplasia. Um, and I, I did think it was a shame after all that I'd learned from them that I'd be travelling overseas to Sub-Saharan Africa, where it's often said there is no, there are no hip dysplasia can, um, cases. And, Ethiopia is particularly remarkable in that the volume of children with DDH is enormous. It was second only to untreated clubfoot. Um, there were children largely coming into walking age, um, often you know, the youngest would be around 18 months and then children coming all the way through their teenage years with unilateral and bilateral hip dislocations. 
Uh, it seems to be due to ligamentous laxity, particularly uh, in, in girls. Um, you know, they're able to touch their little fingers to the back of their forearm. They have, you know, huge, um, there's likely to be a, a spectrum of sort of collagen um, disorder there, which actually mean, meant that we would have a separate waiting list for walking age children with, with hip dysplasia. We would be, um, as surgeons, we gradually grew our, our, our departments. Um, Tim Nunn joined us from Sheffield. We've had other surgeons, Jim Turner and Lawrence Wicks joining us. And we'd have our own separate waiting list whereby all of us would be operating on one or two of these children every week with femoral and pelvic osteotomy. So in many cases, you know, nothing's ever wasted. Though all the, the time and sick kids to learn from some of the greatest of, of that area was put into good practice for many years in, in Ethiopia. And, and surprisingly, we're seeing, we're seeing high volumes here in Zimbabwe as well. Also, I guess neuromuscular is something, you know, we know it affects one in 2,000 live births. So I'm sure there's uh, hundreds, if not thousands of children across Africa who have neuromuscular disorders who I guess are ostracized and, you know, set to one side. And we spoke about earlier, they'd be kept in a room and that would cause them to get vitamin D deficient rickets and all this. So um, tell me, how did you deliver care to that patient group uh, as well? Yeah, yeah, no, there's a huge amount of cerebral palsy. And I think in the UK, the commonest cause of prematurity in, in, in this part of the world is often due to obstructed labor and some challenges during delivery um, and asphyxia during birth. Um, but yeah, it's a hugely common problem and a challenging one. And many of the children would come late as teenagers in severe crouch gait and really heading for a wheelchair. Uh, and they would often need you know, big surgery in order to get their knees straight through femoral osteotomies and, uh, and patella tendon shortening, tuberosity advancements, um, rotational osteotomies as well. Um, but they were, they've always been the commonest, or sorry, they've always been probably the hardest ones for us to make really good decisions on their preoperative evaluation. Um, and, um, you know, one of the side of things that we've done in, um, in, in many years in, in Ethiopia was to be able to run courses for um, for the local surgeons and bringing in some just fantastic world leaders coming in to help us run those courses. And one of those was Tim Theologius from, from Oxford. And um, as part of the course, we saw many children with cerebral palsy. We always take advantage of when some of these extra these specialists come through to share some of our challenges. I think we all do that, don't we? Of just showing some of the cases we're, we're struggling with. And, uh, and Tim with us saw, saw many children with um, with severe gait abnormalities as a result of cerebral palsy. And he went back and spoke to some of the industry representatives um, for Vicon and MTI and Novelle uh, and brought them together with um, the head of the gait lab in, in Oxford, Julie Stebbins, Dr. Julie Stebbins. And those three companies donated um, some really high-end motion capture cameras and pressure plates and force plates to enable us to build our own gait lab in, in Addis, which was a challenge, Julie came along and she um, worked alongside our physios and IT specialists to get that up and running and that just revolutionised it for us. We had children who we could then see in clinic, uh, we would then send them down to the gate lab, we could put them through the gate lab, our gate lab lead would then um, put all the, uh, all the data together and the videos and, uh, and we had and still have monthly calls with Oxford University, with Julie and with Tim Theologius to work through some of these children. Um, to, to see how best we can treat them. And I think that made a huge impact in us being able to make some good decisions for these children and to be able to improve the care that, that we're offering them. 
And to put it in perspective, that gate lab is the only gate lab outside of, outside of South Africa. Um, so, you know, that's an incredible thing to achieve, to set up a gate lab in a low middle income country. And uh, what is described as the cool link, which is the, um, which is the I guess, Kasexa Oxford orthopedic link, which yeah. is sort of what you're talking about. Um, tell me a bit more about um, your role in Kasexa itself. Yeah. Um, obviously, you're you in charge of setting up the paediatric orthopedic uh, training, but I also know you're involved in helping organise deliver fellowships at some of the cure hospitals for paediatric orthopedic surgeons. Yeah, yeah, no, thank you. The um, I, within so Cosex is an incredible organisation, um, and um, so we we knew that in order to have a hope of addressing. Um, children's orthopedics within Ethiopia, we needed to train surgeons to do the same. Now we've been taking residents from the four training programs in Ethiopia for many years, um, but some of them are just highly talented, exceptional surgeons who want to specialize in children's orthopedics. Um, so, we've, so five years ago, we started our own fellowship program in Ethiopia and had one fellow a year to work alongside with us just to be able to take care of all the children in the same way that, that we're able to, for them to return to the government hospital to do the same. But they needed to have an accreditation just to show that they, um, they had reached a level whereby they could be recognised as a children's orthopaedic specialist in Ethiopia. Now other countries were doing the same. The Kyo Hospital in Kenya was doing the same. There was another hospital in Tanzania. There's work in Uganda as well. Um, and there's, there was a need to be able to show that these surgeons had reached a level to be truly considered as children's orthopaedic specialists. So four years ago, um, we started a, a fellowship examination in children's orthopedics, and um, uh, and many familiar people too um, in the UK were have been a part of that. Many of the team in Bristol, Guy Atherton, and Simon Thomas, Andrew Howard in in Toronto, my colleagues in uh, in Ethiopia, um, Tim Nunn, and um, and then then others who have really come alongside us, Norgrove Penny in Canada. Um, have walked alongside us to help develop that accreditation, which uh, we do at the same time as the rate as the COSEXA conference each year to put these fellows through their paces on a clinical and um, and theoretical exam. Um, and you know, it's so key in in sub-Saharan Africa, um, surgeons are pulled into taking care of trauma, but don't necessarily. Uh, always have the opportunity of taking care of children and to be able to um, have these fellowship programs where they can come along and to know how to take care of the children with dislocated hips, the sequelae of hip sepsis for the children who have brachial plexus palsy, for the longitudinal deficiencies. Um, it's a huge need. Our hospital alone in Ethiopia has a waiting list now of over 5,000 children. And what it's meaning then is that our fellows are now going to work in the government hospitals in Addis Ababa and in some of the bigger cities where there are already registrar training positions. They're then establishing their own children's orthopaedic units, they're training other, um, children, other fellows and um, residents to do the same. And it'll just mean that children from the far reaches of Ethiopia won't have to travel for sometimes five days to get down to the capital, but they can be treated locally and have timely, excellent care. And for COSEXA to support that, to have the support of Oxford and SICKIDS Toronto and many of the other big institutions around the world to really help navigate that examination, I think is going to make a very big difference to children's orthopaedic care in this part of the world. 
Now, obviously, you were in Ethiopia for seven years, and during that time, you were also appointed as the chief medical officer um, for Cure International, which covers all eight hospitals. So you're ultimately responsible for medical d- delivered across eight hospitals in eight different countries. Um, what, what does that actually entail uh, at, from that sort of leadership point of view? Yeah, the, the, it's an amazing network um, with some highly talented surgeons all the way through. Um, and um, it's a huge privilege to be able to interface with them, just to be able to see what the challenges they have. Um, you know, for us to be able to learn together to establish standards of care for many of the children's conditions, um, to be able to see where, what are the areas that actually we don't have all the answers to help us guide research and quality improvement. Um, to develop uh, robust systems for morbidity and mortality. Um, do you see where the bottlenecks of care are? What do surgeons need in order to really be released to care, take care of children in the very best way? And all of the stuff that we try to do is to not compromise on care. Um, for, that, for some hospitals that might be um, giving them extra surgeons, um, for be recruiting children's orthopedic surgeons. Other ones may need more training, other places may need more equipment. Um, I think at the start of January last year, um, the world did change. Uh, January, February, March, we, we all have been confronted by the coronavirus pandemic and it's been a huge issue for us as a network as well. You know, in March when we saw just the devastation happening in New York and in Italy and just knowing that healthcare delivery in the countries where we serve is so fragile that they'll be overwhelmed by any form or any degree of um, pandemic anywhere near the magnitude that we've seen in many of the developed countries. Um, and so we as a network started trying to understand, could we get ventilators? You know, back at the time we thought ventilators were needed. Could we convert anaesthetic machines into ventilators if we needed to take care of our own? Uh, of course, we now know that, um, that that's not the, the key determinant of, of quality care for coronavirus. Should we close our hospitals? Um, we kept our hospitals open. We interfaced with the leadership of all of the hospitals three times a week to really try to understand what we needed to do to keep our hospitals safe, our fellow co-workers safe and our patients safe. Um, We went through the journey of understanding how we can test. Should we be buying DNA machines? You know, how could we access testing in this part of the world when so many of the test kits were being kept in developed countries? It was so hard to be able to provide those. and, and what things could we put in place in all of our hospitals to make sure that we could minimize outbreaks. Um, we got incredible leadership throughout the network and we were able to keep all of the hospitals open throughout the pandemic, aside for sometimes when we did have localized outbreaks within our hospitals and we did have to raise the drawbridge for a couple of weeks and stop operating as, as, our, as our co-workers isolated and to make sure that we didn't um, create any further problems for the local environment. Um, so it's been a really challenging time for us and I think a lot of the last year and a half we've all been working together and facing many of the problems that you've had in, in the UK but we've, we've had our own sort of unique aspects to that possibly. But since the start of the pandemic um, we've had no child who's had a complication as a result of coronavirus. There's been 11 or so thousand surgical procedures done since the start and, and really is full testament to the incredible teams we have leading those hospitals that that has been possible. Um, and I think a lot of the, the other work um, is, to, is to really help those, all the surgeons to be able to 
provide the highest care that they are able to. And so much of that is just through collaborations. Um, we working closely with the AO Alliance, who are just making transformative differences to surgical education as part of the world. They, they sponsor many of our educational programs. Um, collaborations with, with Oxford University, collaborations with individual surgeons who are maybe some of the best in the business, who would be willing to get on a plane and come along and work alongside us to take care of children in a remarkable way and to teach us some of their techniques. Uh, everybody wins and, and to be a part of um, bringing together some of those uh, some of those groups has been wonderful to see. And um, you finished, you, know, I, I, you left Ethiopia to come and set up this new hospital, which is in Bulawayo, uh, in Zimbabwe. Uh, Harare is the main city, but there was a decision for it to be in Bulawayo, which is sort of in the southern part of the country. Um, what, what made the cure the decision to set up in this part uh, of the country as opposed to the big city where you'd expect more people to be? Yeah, so I mean, huge credit to Professor Chris Larvey in Oxford. Um, he's, been a, he's been a leader of global health for a generation and an inspiration to many of us who have come overseas. Um, uh, Chris was responsible um, in large part for the, for the building of the hospital in Malawi and Zambia. He's been with Cure for many, many years. Um, in a leadership role and and it was his vision to build a hospital in Zimbabwe he raised money with colleagues to refurbish this hospital where we're sitting now um, it, it's an old infectious diseases hospital that had become derelict it, the, it had burnt down the roof had fallen in um, there were squatters living here and it hadn't provided health care for maybe 10 years um, Chris tirelessly over seven years I mean he's got incredible stamina and diligence and you know amazing ability to come alongside the government and to um, local doctors to bring people together and just to really cast a vision of developing a new children's orthopedic hospital um, and um, over years the hospital um, got permission for the government for a 40-year lease for this land uh, we're right on the doorstep to United Bulawayo Hospital um, so we're really a, a very small sister hospital for them. They're an enormous big government hospital. We've got 40 beds and three operating theatres compared to um, a much larger hospital there. Um, but Chris was able to get the funds together to refurbish this full hospital to build a, a three operating theatre um, um, suite with just really excellent facilities. I mean, facilities are the standard with um, good airflow, you know, excellent operating theatres, good lighting, the kind of theatres that there's no limit to what you're able to do within them and it's really down to the surgeon's expertise regarding what can be done. I mean, it's a beautiful facilities you see. Mm. Um, and why Bulawayo? It's, I'm so glad that we're here. Bulawayo is a smaller city, it's in the centre of the country. Uh, we're surrounded by huge rural populations of children who have been unable to access care and for us to be here so that some of these children, many of these children can come without having to pay for care, which would mean that they wouldn't be able to have their severe blounds or their dislocated hip or their bad results following chronic osteomyelitis and neglected trauma, that they can come here um, without having to pay, not having any barrier to care and to be able to serve them in this place is, is a real joy for me. I've, I haven't been part of starting up a service like this and you know the seven years I spent in Ethiopia gave me an idea of what we would love to build upon um, but there's just an incredible group of surgeons um, 
who are who we're working alongside in in Zimbabwe, who have been very supportive of the work here, referring children who who could benefit from this hospital. Um, we have a, a new surgeon joined us, Dr. Tonga Chitsumatanga, who who's who's just a really wonderful example of what can happen with UK collaboration. He's a consultant orthopaedic surgeon who was working in Harare, um, won a place on the MTI scheme and spent two years working in Oxford and Derby on a fellowship program and returned just a month ago to, to work alongside myself and Dr. Colin Masasanuri to build up the, the service here and to be able to have such highly qualified, talented local surgeons who in many ways are coming home. It's often a, a story in Zimbabwe where people leaving and going back to or going to the UK and staying in the UK, but to have people like Dr. Tongai coming here to be able to serve their own and to work alongside them is, is really wonderful to see. What does your normal work week look like? You know, I think here the volume of work is, uh, is such a high volume of work as I was in clinic. I think we listed about eight patients just this morning, uh, all to be done really within the next two to three months. And these are not small cases, guys. These are PFFD, tibial hemimelias, neglected cuff feet, CP, DDH, chronic osteomyelitis, everything we saw just in a short morning. What does your normal work week look like and sort of what volumes of cases and do you do dual consultant operating, do you do trauma um, and things like that? Yeah, so we, um, we run clinic on Mondays and Tuesdays. We operate Wednesday, Thursday and Friday. Um, and Tonga and I, at the moment, we're, we're working closely together in the, in the OR and, you know, many of the children, they don't need something small. <laughs> they often need something very big. We're, you know, with, uh, the children with DDH, they may be five, six, seven years of age. The children will be coming in with neglected traumatic hip dislocations, but they sustained it a year ago. Uh, but we see more routine children as well, children with osteogenesis imperfecta, which will be similar to what we have back at home and, and other younger children with CP. Um, so, so the week for us is is, is similar clinic and theatre, but we'll run um, we'll run three lists um, during the week, and then in between that, um, working with the the surgeons in across the network as well to be able to um, help them troubleshoot issues that are going on, interfacing with the cure leadership. Um, we've got an amazing team in Michigan who are leading. The organization and I sit there with the chief programs officer and the CEO and the chief finance officer um, to really see what does the next generation hold for Cure and we're starting to talk again about expansion. You know where, where should Cure be for the next 10 years? Where are the countries that Cure should go to? We're, we're really heavily involved within the COSEXA region. It's an amazing place for us to be um, and to be able to further uh, serve in other countries it's a really exciting generation for, for Cure now and for what the expansion could hold. Um, but then also how we can grow deeper. Um, we're, we're in a process now of bringing an external organization called SafeCare to accredit all aspects of our care, to open ourselves up to an external body to say, look, how are we doing regarding our medical care and, and the administrative side of things? Um, and um, we're, we're moving towards trying to standardize equipment so that all over the network, we have the same C arms, the same autoclaves, the same um, uh, the same anaesthetic machines, and so that we can actually have biomedical staff who can work closely to fix them, and we can turn them over, and we can actually continue to provide high quality care by doing things more simply, rather than just accepting different donations of different types, which in itself can create bigger problems. 
but just ways that we can really consolidate and streamline our hospital operations in the other countries, which actually in time, when we build new hospitals, will simplify that further. So it's a really exciting period of time for Cure to grow, to grow deeper um, within the hospitals where we serve and, uh, and to really be a part of children's orthopaedics, plastic surgery and neurosurgery in this region. Yeah, one of those areas is even your EMR. I mean, I'm jealous of your EMR compared to the, the programs I have to use back in the UK. And for those who think uh, theatres in Africa are just a, a dirty room with a horrible sink in the corner, I mean, you had all the great standard anaesthetic equipment. Your theatre was about two and a half times the size that I use on a regular basis. So it's really good uh, to see all that. You mentioned earlier about some specialists coming across, uh, jumping on a plane and coming to do a case. And I know you mentioned to me earlier today about a couple of them. Tell me, how, how does that work? You know, how does the surgeon come from halfway around the world, come into an African country and get to uh, operate and make a real difference without it sort of them coming in, flying in, and then not getting to follow them up? And, you know, that's always been a worry. And when I spoke to Andrew Howard, that was something very much... You know, we don't want people to fly in medical students like, so example, come in and they feel like they're doing stuff. But actually, that's not standardized treatment. What you mentioned to me earlier was very clear. These are the world's experts in their field coming across, donating their time and expertise. Uh, how does that all work? Yeah, so sometimes it's, it's friends, mentors and colleagues who can't get on a plane and come and join us. Um, I think one of the things that we're able to do across all of our hospitals is to be able to uh, make the most of, of all of these specialists. Um, uh, whether somebody's a foot and ankle specialist, then we will keep children back with complex coalitions, um, congenital vertebral tears, whatever it might be within their area of interest, then keeping some children whereby they make a trip um, and to be able to show techniques, to be able to teach our fellows, to be able to show us techniques that we maybe we're not using. Um, sometimes we'll have children with very, you know, unique problems, um, like, uh, like a mirror hand, ulna dimelia, a child born with eight fingers. And there are not many surgeons around the world who have experience of dealing with a child with eight fingers on their hand. Uh, we had a little girl called Rahel in Ethiopia. Um, and, um, and I contacted Scott Cozen, who's just, who's a remarkable man, um, who's chief of surgery in the Shriners Hospital in Philadelphia. And, um, and then he has got, you know, amazing experience of all congenital upper limb work. Um, asked whether he'd be interested to come to Ethiopia. And uh, he said he'd be delighted to. He'd operated on half a dozen of these before. Um, but he's also an expert in brachial plexus palsy. And that was another of our huge um, areas of interest in Ethiopia, given the volume of children who have that condition. And so Scott came across, graciously gave a week of his time, um, to work alongside, just did an exceptional job on Rahel's hand, but on that initial clinic, we had 79 other children with brachial plexus palsy who were saving up for him. And over that time, he showed us how he does the anterior shoulder release and the teres major latissimus dorsi tendon transfer, how to take care of children with, flexor, with, with uh, Volkmann's ischemic contractures doing a flexor slide, children with uh, arthrogryposis and managing their upper limbs. Um, and then he would come back every year to further develop our service for some very, very unique children. And it's that training that can happen almost in a mini fellowship for the surgeons in our hospital, for the fellows, that makes such a huge difference. Um, we we've, have run many courses over time and to be able to sit in a room and you've got 
you know, Andrew Howard, Jim Wright, John Herzenberg, you know, Virgil Monsell coming back, teaching people how to take care of these children. You have them training the residents and the fellows and seeing some of the best in the world coming to train some of these fantastically bright local surgeons. It's, it's a wonderful sense of justice for the educational side of things as well as for the patient care that can be delivered. I must honestly just um, mention Oxford as well, the tumour team there, Max Gibbons and, and uh, Duncan Whitwell, they've been so supportive for them. Um, they've supported us for many years on some of the decision making for some of the complex tumours that would come. Um, and we've had children with massive giant cell tumours, the distal femur and osteosarcoma, to send them the cases and they would say, well, you know, that child needs a total femoral replacement. So we need a distal femoral replacement and then a week later, they're getting on a plane with a, um, a, a, a standmore distal femoral replacement or with a total femoral replacement and then working with us to be able to provide that care to that child. Um, it's really just to be able to see you know, maybe some of the least or some of the most disadvantaged children in the world to receive that standard of care, which we would not have been able to offer, has been really just such a privilege to be a part of. Um, and it's through situations like that that the gate lab came through, that surgeons have come through to be able to provide vascularized fibular transfer for some of the recalcitrant pseudarthrosis and some of these big defects following chronic osteomyelitis that, um, that we've been able to really work towards a way of not compromising on care. And, um, and it's all down to collaboration. So really, if for, for people who are interested in working overseas, we can provide them a soft landing. Um, the case mix that they're most interested in, and everybody wins. It's an amazing experience for the surgeon, incredible for the patients. It really develops expertise in, uh, in the country, both for the surgeons at the Cure Hospital and the trainees who will be there as well. So it's, uh, it's wonderful seeing. Uh, we're always open and willing and excited to be able to hear from surgeons who are, who are keen. I really feel like there's this missed opportunity for trainees doing fellowships, that this is the place this is the place to come and see pathology and really get stuck in high volume practice, complex practice um, with, with that. So how, how would people be able to get in touch with um, Cure or yourself uh, with regards if they wanted to organise something like that? Yeah, we'd love to hear from them. I mean, I've been a huge beneficiary myself from a year in Malawi and, um, and other surgeons whom I work with, um, you know, Tim Nunn and Jim Turner and people who have spent a year overseas um, so we'd love to hear from them. Anyone who's interested in, in, in understanding more about uh, how things work in this part of the world and who would like to be able to, um, to, be able to um, have further training in this area, we'd love to hear from them. So they just need to get in touch and we'll see where they, what their interests lie and how we can support them in that. It's, it's honestly for me that it's been the, the very best part of, of my training and I think it would be for them as well. And finally, let's move on outside of, you know, career and all this. Obviously, not only that, you've brought up a family, got married. How, how, how have you managed uh, with that living in different cities in sub-Saharan Africa? Yeah, so I'm married to an amazing woman called Anne. She's American. We, we met in South Africa many years ago. She's a microfinance consultant and works regionally in, in Tanzania and Rwanda and South Sudan. She's, um, she's an incredible, incredible woman. We've got three beautiful kids, Ben, Grace and Ella. Um, and um, life in Africa is different to the UK, um, but um, on, on the outside, but actually family life is still family life. When I go back home, I've got three feral children who are jumping around and um, story time and bedtime, 
Um, the weekends here in Bulaway are amazing. We've got a huge national park south of here that we love to spend time in, hiking in the hills and just an incredible community here. For us, church is a very big part of our life as well. Um, and, um, and I think you know, if this part of the world is just, is just beautiful. You know, Ethiopia from the, the history of it, for, all the, um, for, for the scenery. I mean, it's a place you would not believe until you see it. And to be able to give our children the upbringing here, to go to a local school and to be able to see a different slice of life, um, I think they're going to be all the stronger for it. And it's, uh, it's a joy for us to be here. So tell me, Rick, you know, after all your time spending time in Africa, where would you recommend everyone, all the listeners, should look at going to? Somewhere that they've probably never heard of, uh, but is a real beauty in the world. Yeah, I, I mean, I just love Ethiopia for um, just this diversity. I think it's, it's a real roadless travel place um, and it's got everything. It's got, in the northeast, you've got the Danical Depression, one of the lowest, hottest, most volcanic places on Earth. Um, to, the, uh, to the north central, you've got the Simeon Highlands. It's like a verdant Grand Canyon. You've got the incredible thousand-year-old rock churches in, in Lalabella. Um, and, um, and just amazing sort of um, cliffs in Mekele region in northern Ethiopia, where these little churches are just snuck into the side of the hillside that you clamber up and down with ropes. Um, I'll come to the Visitor Cure Hospital. You know, many of your listeners are orthopaedic surgeons. We'd love to show them. Many of them are children's orthopaedic surgeons. We'd love to work with them. So come and see the hospital. See the incredible kids that are being treated day in, day out. Get a sense of their stories and just seeing where they come from. Come along and join us and see what we're doing. Um, bring your family and then go and, go and travel. But um, in all of the countries where we serve, we're here in Zimbabwe and Vic Falls. I mean, that's somewhere you've, everyone's got to go to. Whether you're going to be seeing the falls themselves or if you're taking a whitewater raft down them. It's, uh, it's an incredible place. So um, I would just encourage all your listeners, whether they're trainees or consultants, um, just get on the website and just see where we've got hospitals. Get in touch. And we'd love to connect you with some of the hospitals around. Take a few days off and do some traveling because I'd never regret it. And I definitely recommend that too. It's been, I've only managed to get here for a day, but it's been an incredible experience. And not only that, to see how you've developed teams, because a lot of your staff are obviously locals, um, and how, you know, your physiotherapist today, absolutely incredible. Your theatre staff, your star services manager, all of these guys, you know, top notch, we'd be very happy to have them in the UK to work with them. They're so, they're so friendly and, and, and helpful and all that. So, you know, I want to thank you for inviting me and letting me come to spend the day with you. It's been a really educational and humbling experience and it's been great to sit down and talk with you and, and thank you again for doing this. Really look forward to seeing where Cure is in the next decade under your leadership as CMO. Yeah, well, thank you. And thanks for coming to Bulawayo. That's, uh, that's a really wonderful thing and it's been great to talk today. We'll catch up and we'll meet again. Yeah.